First, I'd like to just make an announcement that we've started a class or a workshop, I'm not exactly sure what to call it, once a month that I'm, I'm leading, usually on the last Saturday of each month, from one to three. And so we had one this past Saturday, and that was recorded, and it's on, it's on the website and on the YouTube page. And so those that want to come next Saturday, which or next, mo- next time, which is this month, at the end of this month, the last Saturday of this month, which asks you to watch that first before you come. And we're going to quiz you as you come in to make sure that you did. <laughs> so this morning, I'd like to talk about the most controversial and therefore the most oft-rejected topic in all of Catholicism. Do I have your attention? It's not divorce. It's not the sin associated with Roe versus Wade. It's not anything related to the Sixth Commandment. It's not the ordination of women. It's not this or that Pope. It's not worthy reception of the Eucharist or the liturgy wars or obedience. It's something else. And it jumps right out of this gospel passage that we just heard. So let's work, let's work up to that. So let's go back to last Sunday. We heard last Sunday. And by the way, we're in the 16th chapter of Matthew. And Matthew has 28 chapters, so we're just over halfway. So we've been walking with the disciples as they've been getting to know the Lord. They've been developing their relationship with him. They've been seeing him preach sermons and do miracles. They've been growing more and more in trust of him. And now we're at this pivotal moment, the 16th chapter, where things start to, to change. Things take a turn. And so we heard last, God, last Sunday that Peter gave the right answer to the most important question of all. When Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? He gave the right answer. And that's the most important question and answer in our lives. When Jesus comes to us, even right now at this moment, and says, who do you say that I am? For us to say in response to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the right answer. Everything else falls short. A good prophet, a good teacher, a good example. None of those work. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's all those other things as well, but this is fundamentally who he is. Peter said that at this moment, last Sunday, and Jesus' response to him was, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. That would be good enough of an affirmation of having given the right answer. But he continues, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This was Jesus' response to Peter for having professed his faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Imagine Jesus saying this to each of us, and we can insert our own names in that. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, etc., etc. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Peter, in this moment, was certainly edified, was certainly affirmed, was certainly secure of his identity. 
and even was given authority to bind things on earth. And we see in here the beginning of the papacy, and this has been carried on till today. But listen to what happens immediately thereafter, and that's the Sunday's Gospel. It's the very next line. We didn't skip any verses. Jesus says something to them, which I'll skip for now. And then Peter, after having heard this, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, to rebuke Peter, or excuse me, rebuke Jesus. Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Now, we can give him some credit. He had just been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He probably thought he was doing the right thing. Maybe it was a trick, trick situation that the Lord had put him in to test him. And he was now saying he was now maybe doing the right thing, he thought. Who knows? But he begins to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. And this is what sets up those terrifying words of Jesus. Saying to Peter, the first pope, immediately after his profession of faith. Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. I'll insert a side note here. This is evidence, if anyone was unclear of this, this is evidence that the Pope is in fact fallible. He can make mistakes. I say this because many people have shared with me concerns about, about the Pope, about this current Pope. And another, and another time it would be concerns about that present Pope. So I'm not saying anything about this present Pope. I'm just saying the Pope, as Pope, is not infallible. He can make mistakes. Does he have universal jurisdiction? Certainly. If he legislates something which is not sinful, we are to obey it. And we talked about this last, last Sunday. We obey the Pope in his universal jurisdiction. But can the Pope change truth? Certainly not. Truth is. We discover it. God created the truth. If the Pope were to say something false, we respect him, surely. We owe him our filial obedience, our filial respect as an exercise of the fourth commandment. And if we've broken that, that's something to bring to confession. I've been bashing the Pope or mocking the Pope or what have you. But at the end of the day, we conform ourselves to the truth, not to things that are false. Whereas we heard in the second reading, do not conform yourselves to this age but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. So do not be conformed, do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is the path to discovering the truth so that we can know what is good and pleasing and perfect. Okay, closing the side note. Any concerns? Direct them to the pastor, Father Francisco Flores. <laughs> okay, so what did Peter object to that led up to this rebuke? 
And this is the same answer to what is the most rejected Catholic doctrine? Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. In other words, suffering or the cross. There are many worldviews out there, and every one of them is going to have something to say about how to eliminate the cross, how to eliminate suffering, how to mitigate it, how to avoid it, how to prevent it, etc. And there are some versions of Catholicism that creep in from time to time that take on this flavor. These are false. Catholicism does not try to avoid the cross. The disciple does not try to avoid the cross. Jesus did not try to avoid the cross. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly and be killed and on the third day be raised. And what did Jesus say in return to this? God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. The same thing we say when faced with our crosses. And if we don't think that this applies to us, that this, is only, this only had to do with Jesus, Jesus is the only one that had to suffer and be crucified, listen to the very next line. Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So to be a Catholic, to be a Christian, to be a disciple is not only to say you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It certainly starts there. But it's to let the other foot drop and take up our crosses and deny ourselves and follow him. To not just be Catholics in our intellect, but also in our will to carry out our faith, to live it out. And this is what it means fundamentally to take up our crosses and follow him. Now, is there something wrong with asking God for things to change? Because there's a, this has been said before that there's a distinction between true religion and something like superstition. So superstition is, I'm going to do all these things, these prayers, devotions, sacrifices, practices, what have you. I'm going to do these things so that other things in the world change or other people in the world change. In other words, I'm going to do these things so that God conform to my will. That's superstition. True religion is, I'm going to do these things so that I change. So that I be conformed to Christ. So that I be transformed by the renewal of my mind. This is true religion. To conform our wills to God's, not the other way around. Okay, but is there something, is there a problem with asking for things? We all have needs. We have trivial needs and we have important needs both for ourselves and for our loved ones? Is there something wrong with asking for that? 
Well, of course not, but we come to that as sons and daughters who depend on the father. So a child who asks his or her father for a piece of candy, sure, that's fine. The child can do that. But the moment that he's at, the child is asking the father that, he's grow, he or she is growing in his dependence of the father. And that's fundamentally what happens to us when we ask God for something. We're becoming more dependent on him. And that's, that's what it's all about, first of all. Becoming more and more dependent on God and on God alone. But then also the, the father sometimes gives a piece of candy to the child. And that's fine. And the child rejoices in that. And so sometimes God grants our prayers, and that's fine. That's good. But what about when the child, when the father doesn't, doesn't give the piece of candy? That, that child, if that child is maturing properly, is going, and maybe not immediately, they're, they're going to wrestle with it, and that's fine. But I'm saying this as an analogy to our spiritual lives. The child is going to trust that not having that piece of candy is, is what's best for him. Trusting in the love of the Father and the providence of the Father, which includes not giving the piece of candy, which includes not receiving whatever answer we're looking for. And along the same lines, we want to be careful with saying things like, I know that God exists and that he loves me because of this incredible miracle or coincidence or this wonderful thing that's happening in my life. I know that that's a piece of evidence that God exists and that he loves me. That's, that's fine. That's true. Praise God. But we also want to be able to say the flip side of that, which is, I know that God exists and that he loves me because he didn't give me what I wanted. He gave me the cross instead. That's how I know that he loves me. Because the cross is what's best for me. The cross is the gateway to heaven. My cross is my gateway to heaven. We see this in the life of Christ, of course, first and foremost, and we see it up and down the centuries in the saints. I'll just give two examples. St. Alphonsus Liguori has this wonderful little book, Uniformity with God's Will. You can read it in less than an hour, and you can read it every day, and that would be a wonderful practice. And one, here's one little phrase from that. In cold and heat, in rain and wind, the soul united to God says, I want it to be warm, to be cold, windy, to rain, because God wills it. And sure, that's true for trivial things like the weather, but we can see this metaphorically as well. In cold and heat, in rain and wind, the soul united to God says, I want it to be warm, to be cold, windy, to rain, because God wills it. This is what I want right now. And Mother Teresa, you know, she was a, she was a religious sister for 20 years, and then she received this apparition from our Lord telling her to go leave her order and start a new religious order. And she obeyed, she said yes, and she went and told her superiors. And they said, okay, that's nice. We'll see about that. So there is a spirit of waiting. 
waiting for the church, waiting for her superiors to release her from her vows, waiting from the Vat for the Vatican to allow this to happen. And of course, finally did happen, it took many years, but finally happened, and she went off and started the Missionaries of Charity. She was asked at the end of her life, what was that like for you? Is that frustrating? Did you pray novenas for the church to hurry up and change her mind to bend to your will? Of course, she simply said, expecting the church to conform to my will is like expecting the weather to conform to my will. I'm here as a servant. I serve the Lord and I serve the church. Here I am, Lord, your servant is listening. And whatever it is you're asking of me, I accept it. This is my cross. Okay, I'm basically going to stop here, but I'm just going to put a guardrail on the other side. Because let's say we, you know, there's an error here on this side that says we need to avoid the cross or mitigate it and these things. Okay, so now I'm trying to correct that and bring us here. But we don't want to go all the way to the other side and say something like, well, I'm going to look for my crosses. I'm going to invent crosses in my life. Or most importantly, I'm going to suffer alone. I'm going to do this alone. This is my burden that I have to carry by myself. This would be an error over here. And that's wrong. Why? Because God is going to suffer with us. God wants to suffer this in us and with us. Jesus Christ wants to live his life, which includes his passion, his courage, and his crucifixion, and of course his resurrection. It includes all of this. He wants to live all of that in each of us. So we don't do any of this by ourselves. I could, I, I should really unpack that for another 20 minutes. But that would be a cross for you. I won't put that on you. So I'll save that for some other time, or you can come to the, the classes, the, the workshops on the last Saturday of the month. But here's my quote, closing quote, attributed to Saint John of the Cross. And I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven. And the name of that river was suffering. And I saw a boat which carries souls across the river and the name of that boat was love. And love, of course, is God. God is love. Not a modern or secular understanding of love, but God, who is the crucified God, the crucified and risen God. And we see this most of all in Jesus. You know, this crucifix here, Jesus is looking down, but he, the crucifix in the Adoration Chapel, he's looking up, looking up at the Father. Never disconnected from God. Not even as he's crying out, Lord, Lord, you have forsaken me. He's still connected with the Father in relationship with him. And that's, that's the key for us to carry our cross, his relationship with the Father. And I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven. And the name of that river was suffering. And I saw a boat which carries souls across the river. And the name of that boat was love. <laughs>